0: Well, it's great to be here and I'm very grateful for the invitation extended to me to preach at this morning's service. Uh, This is not just a matter of... uh, Well, the history of St. John's is partly my history and uh, I won't reminisce. Old men do, you know, and I'm not old, so I won't. (laughs) But I could. I remember sitting down there about where Philip's sitting Sunday evenings when John Webster was preaching here with uh, our children Yeah, but we won't go down that track. It was good. It's been good to be Presbyterian. This is the second 150th anniversary service I preached at. And uh, last time I took an 150th anniversary service, I bought a book and researched the history of the congregation. And uh, it was good. And so I thought this time, well, the best thing to do is to read up on the congregation's history. So this time I went to a website. And I researched the history of the congregation. Uh, as, and As I read that history, I was reminded of one of the Reverend John Aitken's uh, favourite hymns, a hymn which was uh, very much part of uh, my initiation into Presbyterianism and what it meant to be Pre- Presbyterian. Uh, you can probably guess the hymn it's O God of Bethel, by whose hand thy pilgrim people, uh, by whose O God of Bethel, by whose hand thy people still are fed, who through this weary pilgrimage uh, hast all our fathers led. For I discovered what we've already been thinking about uh, this morning, uh, that St. John's has been very much a pilgrim congregation. I'm going to go through the pilgrimages a bit. The first service of worship was held 8th of September 1872 in the Rifles Orderly Room, about where the art gallery is now. And and since that time, the congregation has worshipped in the Albion Hall in View Street. It's where the Princess Theatre was, and if you don't remember where that was, it was over the road from the Temperance Hall. Uh, Anyway, it's down View Street. You can go and have a look yourself. Uh, Then St James's Hall in Williamson Street about apparently where Meyer is, and then the first St. John's Church in Forest Street, which was built in 1874, Uh, the Masonic Hall in View Street, then the second St. John's Church in Rowan Street, built in 1880, the third St. John's Church in Forest Street, 1897, the fourth St. John's Church, which was this building, then... uh, the Eaglehawk Presbyterian Church in Victoria Street, Eaglehawk, then the Wesley Methodist Uniting Church in Forest Street, and uh, All Saints Cathedral in Forest Street, just over the road. Reflecting on this pilgrimage reminds us that the anniversary we are celebrating today is not the anniversary of a building, but of a congregation. But since 1872, there have been people in Bendigo who found their spiritual home, not primarily in a building or in a place, but in a body of people, a people committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the gospel of his sovereign grace, to the purity of worship as practiced in the Presbyterian Church of Victoria, and to a form of church government, to use the rather quaint language of Presbyterianism, founded on the word of God, and agreeable there too. And today we are part of, and I use the word we advisedly because I'm part of this congregation. Uh, we are members of St John's, part of St John's for the same reason. We are firstly Christians and then Presbyterians, are committed to the doctrines of grace, the purity of Presbyterian worship. And the scriptural basis of Presbyterian church polity that we are members of a congregation is no accident, that we are saved individually and personally by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and saving faith unites us to him, and he is the head of the body, his body, which is the church, and so that unites us to each other, to the church. So the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptised into one body. And so that's why the Apostles organised the believers into churches. In Acts chapter 14 verse 21 uh, the, Luke tells us in his history of the early church when they had preached, that is the Apostles Paul and those with him preached the gospel in that city which was Derby. Now, you might be wondering what belonging to a congregation has to do with our theme, our anniversary theme, God's God's Word for God's World. In fact, it has everything to do with it because God's Word for God's World is ordinarily first believed, proclaimed, protected, preserved and practised in congregations. Now, we live in an age of extreme authenticity extreme individuality where authenticity being true to oneself is thought by many to be the supreme virtue but the supreme virtue is being true to God revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ and to his word as Jesus said Luke 9 and verse 26 whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And we become Christians by obeying the gospel commands of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we become members of a Christian congregation by confessing the Christian faith as our faith in the body of the congregation. And as a congregation, we affirm that the Christian faith is our faith by repeating the creeds of the church. It's true that the Apostles' Creed begins, I believe, but we say it together, don't we? It's our confession. And then the Nicene Creed is explicitly a congregational confession. It begins, we believe. And then many of the apostolic letters of the New Testament are addressed to congregations, not the leadership, not to the elders, as though the responsibility for maintaining the truth rests on the leadership alone. So the Apostle Paul in Romans writes to the Romans, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, and he writes his letter to the Corinthians, to the church of God that's in Corinth, and he writes his letter to the Galatians, to the churches of Galatia. So as members of a congregation, we have an obligation to ensure that the church continues to be a place where the faith is believed, proclaimed, protected, preserved and practiced. Now it is true, of course, that the eldership has a particular responsibility in this direction Uh, We read in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul's uh, words to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. But it's primarily a congregational responsibility. So the Apostle Jude writes to a congregation and he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Friends, in God's scheme of things, his word for the world is firstly to be contained within congregations of his people. Jesus, in telling the parable of the sower, likened the preaching and the teaching of God's word to the sowing of seed. He told his disciples, uh, the sower goes out to sow, and the seed is the word of God. And it's our responsibility as congregations, both as individual members of the congregation and as a body if and when it should be necessary to obey the the Holy Spirit and to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now let me say that contending is not being contentious. There is a difference. We are to contend. We are not to be contentious. We're not to Be argumentative, combative, uh, delighting in heresy hunting, picking faults in every place. But if it should be necessary, we are to contend for the faith. We are to speak against lies and we are to speak for the truth. Friends, the best protection against error is to know the truth well. Haddon Robinson, in his book, Biblical Preaching, tells the story of a young Chinese boy who went to learn about working with jade. Uh, Perhaps I should have, but jade is a, a greenish material that's carved into various things. I hope you know about jade. The first day he went to study with this eminent teacher and craftsman, he put a piece of jade in the young lad's hands. And told him to hold it. And uh, for about an hour he talked about all sorts of things but not about jade. And then he took the jade back and the lad went home. And this procedure was repeated for weeks. And the boy became increasingly frustrated. When was he going to learn about jade? But he was far too respectful to interrupt his teacher. And then one day, when the teacher put a stone into his hands, the boy cried out instantly, that's not jade. He knew what jade was by the feel of it. Sadly, too many Christians are unable to contend for the faith because they don't know the truth well enough to recognise something else when it comes their way. Well, you might say, well, the truth's not like jade. I can't put it in my hands. I can't feel it. No. But you can read the Bible. You can read and reflect upon the church's catechisms and confessions of faith until you know the truth as well as that lad knew what jade was. Holding the truth in our minds will help us be sensitive Firstly, to the danger of the absence of the truth, to the omission of the gospel from preaching and teaching, from listening to mere moralism. That's why our church's constitution requires its ministers, requires us who preach and teach to give a chief place in our teaching to certain objective supernatural historic facts, And it goes on to list them, especially the incarnation, the atoning life and death and the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and his giving of his Holy Spirit and to the message of redemption and reconciliation implied and manifested in them. And that's the gospel, you see. Certain historic facts and the meaning and the explanation and what those mean to you the gospel of salvation from the wrath of God by his grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Also, holding the truth in our minds will help us discern preaching and teaching that is against the truth. You might say, well, that's not not going to happen in church. But it does. It has. And lack of such discernment has had and continues to have serious consequences for the proclamation, protection, preservation and practice of God's word. See, during the last 200 years or so, there's been a widespread rejection of the authority and truthfulness of the Bible, even in Christian churches. Instead of confessing with Christ and the apostles that the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God written, uh, preachers have taught that it is merely a human book and that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross and his bodily resurrection are incredible to the modern mind and therefore should not be preached or taught, not needed to be believed. Not necessary for the Christian faith. Now it's sadly true that they probably learned these errors in theological colleges. But such should never, such teaching should never have overtaken whole denominations, and they could only have done so if they had, if they were tolerated, instead of being rejected. Why do congregations tolerate teaching that is hostile to the Christian faith? There may be many reasons. Lack of courage, a desire to avoid unpleasantness, unwillingness to challenge authority. I suspect that perhaps the most significant reason is that they have never experienced the faith for themselves. That while they have believed... It was only in their minds, not in their hearts. And so they were open to change. And when their beliefs were challenged by an appeal to modern wisdom or to science or to some other authority other than the scriptures, they were open to change. And they changed their beliefs and abandoned the faith. Friends, I want to say that God never intended that his word should be held merely in our minds. He intended that the truth should be received by faith, that it should dwell in our hearts and that it should transform our minds. In 1816, Robert Haldane, he was a noted Bible teacher and writer, he came to Geneva and he extended the invitation to uh, theological students to gather with him in his home and study the scriptures. And amongst those students was uh, Jean-Henri Merle de Bigne, pardon my French, but anyway, that was his name. And he became, in his later years, a noted pastor, church historian and author. De Bigne said, I met Robert Haldane and heard him read from an English Bible, a chapter from Romans, about the natural corruption of man, a doctrine of which I had never heard. In fact, I was quite astonished to hear of man being corrupt by nature. I remember saying to Mr Haldane, now I see that doctrine in the Bible. Yes, he replied, but do you see it in your heart? Tobigny says, that was but a simple question, yet it came home to my conscience. And my friend, I want to ask you the same question. Has the good seed of God's word been sown in your heart so that it's reached your conscience to convict you of your sin, so that you see Jesus Christ, your need of him, the saviour of sinners? Have you been converted? Has the word of God changed you? Do you believe in Jesus as the saviour of sinners and as your saviour? Do you know the scriptures, the word of God, as the word that brought you from death to life? From the broad road that leads to hell and destruction to the narrow road that leads to heaven and life eternal. And if not, then you are not yet holding the word of God as God intends you to hold it. To hold it truly, you must let it hold you so that you believe its truth and you believe in its saviour, Jesus, who delivers every believer from the wrath to come. Then when you believe it in that way, it will be more precious to you than life itself. And you will give your all to make sure that your congregation continues to be a place where the faith is believed, proclaimed, protected, preserved and practised. And then just as God never intended his word to be merely held in the mind, but that it also be received by faith, dwell in our hearts and transform our minds, so he also intends that it bear fruit in our lives, the fruit of a transformed life. The Apostle Peter writes to Christians, and he says in his first letter, chapter 1, from verse 22, "'Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed,' but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And on into chapter 5, he says, therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God's word is firstly to be contained in congregations, but it's not to be confined to the congregation, but spread abroad. And we see this practice We see this in apostolic practice in the way the church organized or God organized the church and the way the apostles practiced the faith. Barnabas saw the need for someone to teach the new Christians in Antioch. The church was flourishing and there was a need for someone to come and teach and he went to look for Saul and he found him in Tarsus and when he found him, Acts chapter 11, he brought him to Antioch And for a whole year, Luke tells us, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that believers in the Lord Jesus were first called Christians. And then, later on in that same congregation, in Acts chapter 13, we read that while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then, after fasting and praying, they set hands upon Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. And the scripture says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. So the church sent them, the Holy Spirit sent them, and they went to proclaim the gospel in places where it had never been proclaimed before. Now, the Holy Spirit's not always bound to work in the same way. With the great persecution that followed the murder of Stephen, in Acts chapter 8 verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They weren't sent in an orderly fashion, but they were still sent from a congregation. They were scattered into the wider community and the wider nations around about them by the work of God. His um, overruling the evil of persecution for good. And so while we have an orderly way of Commissioning people to go and preach, pastors, teachers, missionaries. Uh, we also have a regular scattering. It's not the scattering of persecution, not at the moment anyway, but by our ordinary transition from a gathered congregation, as we are here this morning, to a scattered congregation, as we will be shortly, when we go from enjoying. Uh, morning tea, lunch, whatever it might be, uh, into our various places, our homes, our places, our our workplaces, and everywhere where we mix and meet with other people. And there, uh, Christian friends, our bearing the fruit of God's word is vital for the credibility of the message. Consider, for example, how the Apostle Paul connects The Christian lifestyle with the Christian witness to God's Word. For instance he writes to Titus a young pastor in chapter 2 and he's telling Titus how to give instructions to the Christians in his congregation and he says older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. See the connection between their behavior and the way the word is received and then he goes on to Titus he says show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And then he goes on to address a word to slaves. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn, that is, make beautiful the doctrine, the teaching of God our Saviour. The Apostle Peter in his first letter, chapter 3 and verse 15, encourages Christian believers to always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why would anybody ask us about our hope as Christians, about why we're Christians? If you read the text in its context... You will see that the reason the apostle has in mind is how strangely, how weirdly Christians behave compared to other people. The respectful and pure conduct of Christian wives towards their unbelieving husbands that's one thing he mentions. The honour Christian husbands show their wives as the weaker vessel using their strength to protect, not abuse. And then Christians responding to hostility by not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, loving their enemies, praying for those who persecute them, doing good, overcoming evil with good. And such behaviour is so unusual that it prompts the question, why? And the why opens the door for the faith to be explained. When people want to know, then the door is open for the sowing of God's word in their hearts to tell them about Jesus. Well, we're marking the 150th anniversary of this congregation, 150 years of God's faithfulness. Since 1872, St. John's Presbyterian Church Bendigo has testified in Bendigo and beyond to God's word the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ it was this word that brought the congregation to being and it's by this word that the Holy Spirit has sustained the congregation through the many ups and downs of its history this word brought me to saving faith Christian friend, it brought you to saving faith. Congregation, it brought us into union with Christ and into union with each other. Through that word, we know the forgiveness of our sins, uh, peace with God and membership of his church. Uh, And words can't express, can they, how grateful we are that the gospel of God came to us not simply in word, but with power. As it came to the Thessalonians of old, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, so that we, like the Thessalonians, turn from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus, his son, from heaven. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This word is God's word of love, to to people everywhere, perishing in their sins. It's a word of warning. For God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Judgment is coming. And it's a word of promise. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this is the word which has been entrusted to us. It's the gospel of his free grace. And the question is, will we be faithful in guarding it, in proclaiming it, and in adorning it with Christ-like behaviour so that in another 150 years' time, there will still be, in the grace of God, a St. John's Bendigo congregation. Perhaps not in this building, but maybe somewhere. Or will we be faithless, uh, prayerless, careless of the glory of God and of the eternal destiny of family, Uh, friends, neighbours all those people out there without God and without hope in the world who desperately need to hear that same word of God which has been such a great blessing to us we hold that word as a congregation in trust God has not given it to us simply for our own satisfaction our own blessing it's not me, I and mine Will we honour the trust or will we not? Let us consider the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12 that each of us will give account of himself or herself to God. We will give account for what we have done with the word of God which God has entrusted to us. And then we might well make Charles Wesley's words our earnest prayer. Arm me with jealous care, as in thy sight to live. And O thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, your word has come to us this morning uh, with warning, encouragement and challenge. We give you praise for your grace to us that your word has come to us as a word uh, of life, hope, peace and joy. We pray for grace to, that we may hold the, the trust that you have given us faithfully that we each may do all that you call us to do and equip us to do and command us to do that when our Lord Jesus Christ appears in his glory, and we stand before him to give account of our service as believers, that we will hear his wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Grant us this, we pray. Strengthen us, guide us, guard us, protect us, help us to be faithful, pass on what we have received to generations yet to come as we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.